I have just been handed an announcement. Actually, I'm going to make two announcements. Uh, you all know that we had two twin little boys. If in the middle of my message I just stop speaking and can't remember anything that I'm doing, <laughs> it's mostly because my brain's not working well. Pray for me, and hopefully I'll keep going. Um, also, uh, Carol asked me to mention that if you would like to, to purchase some poinsettias, there are envelopes, and we use them to decorate our sanctuary, and then you're welcome to take them home when we're through with them, and you can use them for the rest of the holiday season. Uh, the envelopes are on the counters. Actually, they're not, because those counters aren't there anymore. They are on little tables. Okay, so the envelopes are in the hallways if you would like to purchase a poinsettia, uh, and sometimes we do that in memory and honor of a loved one who's passed, uh, and that's just a possibility she asked me to mention. As we go to the Gospel of John, where where I'd like to preach my message today, I want to encourage you to turn to John chapter 6. Use a phone if you need to. Grab one of the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. If you remember, as we went through each of the books of the Bible, and then I got to the four Gospels, I made this goofy coffee analogy with each of the Gospels, saying that, like coffee, the Gospels are good, and they're meant to be shared. And I said that Matthew was a little bit like a rich cup of black coffee that you just love and enjoy, but for the first time, if you've never had coffee before, it might be a rough introduction, and maybe you won't like it right away, because it's hard to understand. I said that Mark... It's like a little shot of espresso. He's short, he's full of energy, he's powerful. But again, it's a little bit challenging. If you have espresso for the first time and you've never had coffee before, you'll probably never have coffee again. Mark's gospel is a little bit easier than that. But at the same time, he assumes that you understand a lot when you come to it. And so it's difficult to understand. I said Luke's gospel, probably the easiest and sweetest gospel to understand, is like a white mocha. If you've never had coffee, it's a perfect place to start because white mochas are impossible to hate. They will give you diabetes, but they are delicious. Luke will not give you diabetes. Luke explains things because he's writing for people that have probably not grown up hearing the scriptures. They're not familiar with the Messiah. And so he explains in a lot of detail who Jesus is and where Jesus comes from. And when Jesus does things, he helps you understand why he does them and what he means. And so Luke, I believe, is one of the best places to start reading the Bible if you want to come to know Christ. Which leads us to John's gospel, which is where I'd like to spend our time this morning. And I said that John's gospel is like something called a black eye. Not, not a literal black eye, but if you are very tired, and, and I can speak to the kind of state of mind that you are in when you need this, you can order a cup of regular coffee and have shots of espresso added to it. And so a black eye is two shots of espresso in a regular cup of coffee. It packs a punch, and so does John's gospel. John's gospel has some of the best known verses in all of scripture. I think many of you could quote, and most all of you have heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And if the whole gospel were like that, it would be so easy to understand. 
But Jesus says some things that are difficult to understand. And John's goal is that unlike the other Gospels, where you understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and you can see in places as he forgives sins and makes claims about who he is, that he is equal with the Father, you have to work a little bit to get there. In Matthew's gospel, the disciples don't seem to realize it until very late in Jesus' ministry. But in John's gospel, John begins that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says that all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, Jesus Christ is not just a teacher or a prophet. Jesus Christ is the creator. And so before he was born in Bethlehem, he existed for all of eternity with the Father. And he was born in Bethlehem so that you and I could know God and know what God is like. Today, I want to look at one passage in particular as Jesus explains who God is and what God is like that actually caused people to quit following Jesus. When you hear it and when you read it, you might think, that's, that's just strange. That's bizarre. Why would Jesus say something like that? But the reality is, because of who we are and because of the history of the world, we don't automatically know what God is like. And we don't know who he is. And so we need Jesus to come and tell us what he's like. And so Jesus makes seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John so that we could know what he is like and so we could know what the Father is like. And some of them are easy to understand and and we get it and we understand it right away. But some of them lead to places that are somewhat strange and hard to understand. And the one I want to look at today is actually both. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And in the beginning of this chapter, we're not going to read it, but if you look at the beginning of it, Jesus had fed over 5,000 people from a little boy's lunch. He took a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, and the scripture says he broke the loaves and the fish, and he passed them out, and he just kept passing them out. And they never ran out. And over 5,000 people were full, and it was an obvious miracle. And everyone praised God and understood that something spectacular had happened. And then he said, I am the bread of life. And if nothing else, we ought to understand that Jesus is good. That he is deeply satisfying. If you think about bread for just a minute, and, and even people who no longer eat bread, whether because you have like celiac disease or, or gluten sensitivity, or, or maybe you believe that carbs are some cosmic mistake that we should never eat, even if that's you, you cannot deny that bread is delicious. It doesn't matter if it's barley, if it's rye, if it's French, if it's whole wheat. It doesn't matter what kind of bread it is. There is nothing greater than the smell of fresh baked bread. Especially if you slather a little butter on it. It is so good. It's so good. 
Because my wife is not here, I can tell you, for Christmas, I helped our kids get her a, a, a couple of little candles. We took them to the mall. It was a crazy adventure. And I don't know why, but they don't make a fresh bread smell candle. I, I would think that would be so obvious. Who wouldn't want that? Nothing makes you hunger more than the smell of fresh bread. And few things are more satisfying. And if you look at bread through the scriptures, you find people praising God for its goodness. They love to praise God for grain. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's brought into part of their worship. And they leave little bits of grain to express their thankfulness because they know where it came from. And if you look, at least two of the largest miracles in all of Scripture involve God providing enormous amounts of food for enormous amounts of people. If you think in Exodus, as the people have left Egypt and they don't have provisions and they're hungry and they're afraid they're going to die, God miraculously rains manna down from heaven. And throughout Scripture, that's understood as a type of bread. And so God provided for his people miraculously, generously. And they were satisfied and they loved it. They said it was sweet to eat. And then Jesus comes along and does in very similar ways, almost the exact same miracle where he produces for thousands of people bread that they could not have supplied for themselves. In fact, you see his compassion even before he works the miracle because he sees that they are not able to walk back to a village where they can buy bread. They've come to hear him teach. And so he wants to feed them so that they have their basic needs met because Jesus understood their needs. And so if nothing else, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we ought to understand that Jesus is good, that he's deeply satisfying. When we as Christians talk about Christ and when we experience Christ, We ought to do it in the same way. You know, if you buy a fresh loaf of bread from Panera Bread or or maybe from the bread store downtown Holly, it would be normal for someone else to see that and want some. Just to ask you to share, like, could I have some of that because it's so good? And it would be normal for you to say, no, you know? (laughs) But the reality is, Jesus is that attractive thing that fills your longings, that makes you full, that helps you be satisfied. And as you experience Christ, it ought to be normal for you to love him and want to share him with other people. Jesus says he is the bread of life, and the point is not physical bread. In fact, the point that he's making is that there's something greater than physical bread, and you and I need it, and he is supplying it. So I want to invite you to follow along with me. I'm going to read a couple of verses, starting in verse 26, where Jesus makes the statement, and he describes what it is that he means and what we need to do if we're going to experience the goodness of Jesus. The the crowd has just seen him work this miracle He has left in the middle of the night, so they wake up in the morning and they're trying to figure out where Jesus is and they they realize that the disciples went to the other side of the lake and so they they didn't see Jesus go with them, but they know he's gone. So they they walk around and get in boats and, and they boat and they go and they find him. And when they find him, they ask him, when did you come here? In verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
you're seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you saw this miracle, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to them, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now understand, we believe in a gospel of grace. That God freely gives us forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet Jesus says something stunning here that almost seems to run into that doctrine. He says, you and I ought not work for food that perishes, but we should work for the food that endures to eternal life. Notice what work is in this context. People were literally rowing in boats to get across the sea to get to Jesus. There was physical labor involved. There was also a sacrifice of time. We don't know what these people did for a living. Many of the people in that area were farmers. Some of them would have been merchants. Probably some of them were fishermen. But whatever the vocation was, they weren't engaging in normal work. Instead, they were devoting their time and their energy to following Christ And Jesus says that the work is not the problem. The motive is the problem. So he wants us to understand with time and with energy and with commitment, we should seek the kind of bread that is eternally satisfying. They are right in spending time and energy coming to him. The problem is they're wrong in why they came to him. So how do we work? If Jesus wants us to work to have this kind of food that's deeply satisfying that we have in Christ, what do we do? Well, first, I believe we do devote time and energy to it. And I believe that we ought to plan for it. You know, if you want to accomplish something in life, they say that if you, if you don't plan, you plan to fail. Failure to plan is a plan to fail. And I think the same is true spiritually. If you don't plan on how you're going to receive more of Christ, if you don't plan on when you will spend time seeking him, if you don't plan on how you will spend time seeking him, you won't seek him and you won't work and you will not be satisfied in him. So number one, we work by planning to seek Christ. Number two, One of the things that Jesus says, and I'm going to point out a couple of verses later in this chapter before we read them, is that people heard his word and they saw his miracles and they still did not believe. And out of that, I believe we need to pray to ask God to increase our spiritual appetite. In other words, some of us feel like Christ is a good thing, but maybe not the most important thing. Jesus says it's the most important thing in the world. And in fact, he says that for us to really want Christ, the Father has to give us that desire. He has to draw us. Look at verse 44 of this chapter. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that's a, that's a controversial statement. Jesus is building a crowd of people. They're coming to him. They're, they're listening to him. They're seeing him do miracles. And then in the middle of all that, he says, no one can really come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, what does that mean for you and I? I believe that means that we ought to ask the Father for help. If you have heard about Jesus and you just kind of struggle and say, man, some people are really crazy about him and that's good for them, but I don't know if that's for me, recognize that that's not a safe place to be, that you and I ought to desire Christ more. So I believe the second thing that we do to work for this bread is just to ask the Father to increase our spiritual appetite. Lord, make me hungry for the things that really matter. And number three, Jesus kind of explains this as he goes on. I believe that we need to look at Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. We need to look carefully at the word so that we see what his life was like. We see the example that he set. We see the kind of heart that he has, the kind of compassion and mercy that he shows. And also we see that he loved us so much that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And we ought to think often about the cross of Christ. We look at him in the scriptures. We seek him in prayer. The Bible says that we receive the Holy Spirit when we hear the scriptures with faith. So what I would say to you is one of the ways we work to be satisfied in Christ is to make sure that we hear the scriptures and to ask God to help us believe. There's a story of a man in the Bible that that was asking Jesus to do a miracle. And Jesus said to him, this is possible if you believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can pray that prayer. And I believe that God will honor it. He loves to draw people closer to Jesus. And in fact, you could pray that prayer right now if you're not sure where you stand with Christ and you think, wow, I really do need more of him in my life. Even as you're listening to this, say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Increase my desire. Help me to commit to see the scriptures. Help me to commit to listen to the scriptures. And the result of that faith, Jesus says, is eternal life. So we've seen the command to work, to get this bread. Now look at verses 35 through 40 and see what Jesus says happens when we receive that bread. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father will give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There are a couple things that that I believe that we have to notice here. Jesus has said that nobody comes to him unless the Father draws him. And sometimes that, that makes people worry. Like, how do I know if the Father is drawing me? Well, that's not your concern. Here's the thing that you need to rest on, that you need to have your hope in. Jesus says, anyone who comes to him, this is verse 37, he will never cast out. What I would do with that verse is I would pray and say, Lord, 
as best as I know how, I want to come to you in a way that, that you will never cast me out. I want to claim this promise that, that as I come to you in faith, you will protect me and keep me safe and satisfy me forever. Jesus says the promise when you receive him is that you will never hunger and you will never thirst. And that happens when two things happen, when you come to him and when you believe in him. He says it is God's will that everyone who believes will have eternal life. My question for you this morning is, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that he loves you? That he is meeting your deepest needs when he gave his body for you on the cross. That you can have life in him. Because if you believe it is the father's will that you will have eternal life starting now. And that even if you die, Jesus will raise you up on the last day. You have the hope of resurrection because of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. I believe that what Jesus would want you to do is as best you know how, come to Christ. As Christians today, we understand the command of baptism to be the way that a person first comes to Christ. If you've never been baptized, I believe coming to Christ means that you would say, I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe he died for my sins and rose from the dead. And I want to commit my life to him by being baptized. But it's more than just the ritual. It's not just a bath. He says that we have this eternal life when we come to Christ and when we believe. The scripture says so clearly, by grace you are saved through faith. And in the Bible, the word for faith and the word for believe are the exact same word in Greek. It's pistuo. It means belief. It means faith. It's a kind of faith that does things. It's a kind of faith that changes your life. And so Jesus says that if you come to him and if you believe, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. Not ultimately. And I want to clarify like an easy misunderstanding because it's possible and some preachers give a message that that makes it sound like if you come to Christ, God wants to make you wealthy and happy and, and you'll never long for anything and you'll never be disappointed and you'll never experience depression because God doesn't want his children to go through those things. I don't believe that's true. God is a father who satisfies your deepest needs. And it doesn't mean that you won't experience depression. Christians do. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts. Christians do. What it means is that God will feed you exactly what you need. And that he will never fail you. You know, I've mentioned a couple times already. We've got these two little kids that are at home this morning. They, they are constantly in a state of starvation. I say that they're starving because every two hours, one or both will cry. And they will cry like the world is ending. It's not like a little whimper like, it'd be nice to have a snack. It's like, I'm going to die if you don't feed me. And here's the thing. Lauren and I are both there, or at the moment, just Lauren is there. We haven't abandoned them. In fact, we are eager to meet their needs. We have plenty of food 
We're not going to run out. And we will satisfy their hunger. But shockingly, at two weeks old, they don't seem to trust us very much. And I think that's a lot like what the Christian life is like. In Psalm 23, David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You know, the, the, the valley of the shadow of death, I believe, can be a lot of things. It can be depression. It can be the loss of a loved one. It, it can be the loss of a job and you feel like, God, I'm, I'm not going to meet my needs right now. Jesus, being your bread, does not mean that you won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It means that he's there with you. That he will protect you. That he will provide for you. And maybe you want some things that he's not providing. But it means that he continually feeds you all along the way of your life. And one day, we will enjoy an eternal feast that will never end. Jesus clearly teaches, as he says he is the bread of life, that he is giving true life. So there's a true life that is eternal, that is real, and there is a wrong kind of life, the kind of bread that perishes, the kind of thing that leaves you hungry in the future. Jesus says that he gives eternal life that never ends. Everything else is temporary, but Jesus gives eternal life. The kind of life that Jesus gives you can sustain you in a hospital bed, It can sustain you even as you cross from this life into the next. When your faith is in Jesus, you will never truly need anything else. Because even if you die, your shepherd is with you and will sustain your soul. Some of the other things that Jesus says in this gospel help us understand what he means here. He says, he is the good shepherd. He says he is the resurrection and the life. He is there to protect you so that your soul will not be lost and he will never fail you. Here's something that's hard. One of the greatest dangers, I believe, to our souls is the fact that we can be satisfied with the kind of bread that perishes so that we're not hungry for Christ. Because if life is good and you are generally, on the whole, a happy person, but Christ is not part of your life, one day when you stand before Christ, you will lose everything. But Jesus longs to bless you in such a way that you will have eternal joy that never ends. And so one of the kindest things that Jesus can do to you is he can leave you hungry from the kind of food that perishes so that you are dissatisfied, so that you are discouraged, so that you are afraid, and so that you seek something greater and something better, something more lasting, something eternal, so that you ultimately seek Him. You see this kind of criticism at the beginning of this passage when the people come to Him because He did a miracle and fed them with bread, and He said, that's all right, but don't work to get the kind of bread that you'll just be hungry again, that will eventually let you down. Instead, work to have the food that endures to eternal life and understand Jesus is that food. Only Jesus 
can walk with you from this life into the next. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest longings now. So the question is, how do we eat and drink this kind of bread? How do we receive the bread that Jesus is offering? And I want to point you to verses 52 to 59, and we're going to read some of the passages that that is so confusing and difficult. Notice the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, this is verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my body is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now this is an offensive and confusing statement for at least two reasons. First, the people listening to Jesus thought that he was being arrogant because he was acting as if he was greater than Moses. From their perspective, Moses is the greatest prophet that God ever sent to his people. And they know the miracle of how God supplied his people, not just once in a wilderness, but for 40 years he fed them manna that fell from heaven. And so Jesus feeds a bunch of people once and starts talking and saying things that acts as if he's greater than Moses. And they feel like, wait, you did something incredible, but you're not that great. And Jesus' point is, no, he really is that great. He actually is greater than Moses because he hasn't come to feed stomachs. He's come to satisfy souls. And so he's offensive, but because he wants them to understand something greater than Moses is in their presence. So that's the one reason that it's offensive. He's claiming to be greater than one of their heroes. But second and more to the point, this is offensive because it's kind of gross. God commanded people in the Old Testament to never eat any blood at all. Like, you could not have gravy with Thanksgiving if you were an Old Testament observing Jew. And Jesus is saying, not only are they to eat blood, they're to eat his blood. And so it sounds like cannibalism. In fact, in the ancient world, Christians were often accused of cannibalism. But Jesus' statement points to our real need. There is a literal sense in which Jesus offered his body and blood for us. He made it very clear that he laid his own life down because he knew our need. Think again of that famous verse from this gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave his body and blood, literally, for us. Because his body and blood were necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. And so there is a literal way in which Christ offered his physical body and blood for you and for I. He was beaten and whipped. He was crucified. And that is what it means when he gave his flesh and blood for us. 
The question then becomes, what does it mean for us to eat and drink? And I want to offer a clarification here. I I had Alan read a passage from 1 Corinthians that talks about how we eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord when we take communion. And Jesus is not teaching that communion literally becomes human flesh and blood. In fact, if you notice in this passage, and I would encourage you to see it written, verse 63, Jesus says very plainly, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So putting something in your mouth and in your stomach does nothing for you spiritually. Then he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So it's not some sort of mystical transformation where a cup of juice and a cracker becomes a human being. Instead, it's the Spirit that gives life through the words of Christ. As we understand that Jesus very literally offered his body for us. And we take communion to remember what he did. Jesus commands us to eat and drink, not in a literal sense. Instead, we are to eat and drink something that reminds us of what he did for us, literally. Not only that, Jesus says very clearly in this passage, if you want to be saved, you need to look and believe. Go back to verse 40. He says, verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. If you look and believe, you are taking in Christ. You are receiving the eternal life that God wants you to have through Him because of what Jesus did. We need to look and believe at Christ as he is written in the word of God in order to have this eternal life. Not only do we need to look and believe at Christ in the word of God, I do want to mention that communion is critically important in the life of a Christian. We need to think often that God loved us so much that he met our deepest need, which was for our sins to be forgiven. And one of the ways that Christians remember that is by coming again and again to the communion table knowing that we need to continually feed on Christ. In fact, one of the things I want to point out in this passage is that Jesus describes this as an ongoing thing. It's a continual feeding. Verse 56, whoever feeds, present tense, it's ongoing on my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me. Abides is a word all throughout John's writing that means continuing, ongoing. And if you think about it, bread does not do you any good if you only eat it once in this life. If you have one meal, it's not going to take long before you starve to death. But Jesus' desire for you is that you would continue to feed on him. Now it's true. Jesus is saying once you've tasted him, you will have that eternal life. But the reason is, is you'll never go anywhere else and you will continue to taste him again and again. You ought to want more and more. Bread is not a one-time thing either physically or spiritually. In fact, it's not a weekly thing. In fact, I would venture to say no one in here only eats once a week. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And you and I need to partake of Christ in a daily way. 
So as I close this morning, I want to ask you a question very pointedly, and I would like you to have an answer in your mind. My question for you is, are you hungry? Are you hungry spiritually? Have you been eating enough of the bread of Christ? Are you working to get more of this bread? Remember, Jesus commands them to work to get this eternal bread. Do you plan to make sure that you have bread daily? Do you read some of the scriptures in a daily way? Do you listen to to podcasts? Do you listen to radio that will feed your soul? Do you talk to Christians you love and respect who will encourage you and pray for you? So that you are fed from other Christians who know Christ, who will point you back to him, who will strengthen your faith. Are you working to get more of this bread? As we, as we think about what we ought to do if Jesus truly is the bread of life, and I believe that he is, I want to urge you to commit to seeking him in a daily basis. If you've never come to Christ before, I want to urge you to be baptized And to commit to following him with your life. To seeking this kind of bread forever. And if you are a believer and you would like to grow more. One of the things that I want our church to grow in. To be better at. Is person to person discipling. If you want one person from our church to come alongside you. And help you know Jesus better. I'd like to ask. Would you be willing to to do one of a few things. You could talk to me today before you leave this service. And say, man, I, I don't know if it's a weekly phone call. I don't know if we meet once a month for coffee. But, but I'd like to make sure that I talk to another Christian in our church so that we can grow closer to Jesus. You can send me a text message. My number's in the bulletin. You, you don't even have to talk to me personally. Sometimes people are embarrassed by things like that. Send me an email. But let's make sure that we as a church encourage each other in a person-to-person way. Some of you are not real comfortable praying. You don't even know how to pray, and that's fine, except that it ought to change. Some of you are not comfortable reading the Bible on your own, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. None of us start out as Bible scholars, but it ought to change. And so if you would like help seeking Christ on a daily basis and you want someone to come alongside you, would you talk to me before you leave today or send me a text? I'd love to make sure that we as a church are faithfully helping each other grow. Finally, as we go into the new year, I'm going to be finishing Luke's gospel. And I would love it if everyone here read Luke's gospel beginning to end at least once before we're done with the gospel. There's 24 chapters. If you start it now, Read two chapters a day, you will finish before Christmas and you'll be celebrating the birth of Jesus with a full knowledge of what Jesus came to do when he was born, that little baby, so long ago. I want to urge you, as we finish this this text now, to be seeking Christ and to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And I want to close by reminding you of this. Jesus is good. Jesus is something that is deeply satisfying. He says things that are hard. He says things that are confusing. But if you seek him, you will find him and he will satisfy your every need. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we know that you love your son and we know that when we seek him, you love to answer that prayer. So, Lord, as best we know how, we want to come to you and ask that you would increase our hunger for Christ. As best we know how, we want to come to you and ask that you would help us to seek him daily. 
to have the daily bread that we need in Jesus. And as best we know how, Lord, I pray that you would make us a discipling church where we encourage each other and strengthen each other, that we remind each other of your goodness. Lord, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.